Bibles to Romans chapter 12 at verse 9 will be to the end of the chapter, page 1764, 1764, in your pew Bible. As we take a brief pause from our Advent series and return to our Lord's Supper series, picking up now those first four words of verse 9 as our text. But we'll read all of 9 to 21, keeping in mind the context, remembering what Paul says at chapter, or verse 1 rather, of chapter 12 about giving our bodies as living sacrifices. So this is that section of Paul's letter where he's telling us to show our gratitude for salvation, to show the work of God in our lives, and here are some very concrete ways in which we can do that. So beginning at verse 9, love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, honor one another above yourselves, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, sharing with God's people who are in need, practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's for the reading of God's holy word. Again, the text is those first four words, love must be sincere. May the Lord add his blessing to that. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul really has a thing about how love is central to the Christian life. He, he sees a very profound, a very strong bond or connection between what it means to be saved by God in Christ and what it means to serve others, to love others, uh, our neighbor as ourselves, as a Christian. We could, re- we could recount all the many ways in which Paul demonstrates that. We've seen that now here already in verse 9, the very first of these practical matters that Paul uh, addresses us with is love must be sincere. We could turn and read all of 1 Corinthians 12, that very familiar uh, passage where Paul says, I will show you the more excellent way. And then in chapter 13 talks all about uh, and describes for us love. We could turn to Galatians 5 verse 14 where he says the entire law is summed up in this, love your neighbor as yourself. We could go to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, where he says, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love. Or Colossians 3, verse 14, where he says, Put over all of these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in unity. 
We could turn to 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 9, 1 Timothy 1, verse 5. We could turn to so many of his passages to demonstrate that for Paul, to be a Christian is to love. And not only Paul, we could turn to the Apostle John, who is called the Apostle of Love because of his particular focus on this quality. John, for example, writes, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. You can find that in 1 John 4. So love seems to be at the core of what it means for us to be children of God, to be redeemed, to be changed by the Spirit of Christ, which shouldn't surprise us given where we've come from. Listen to how Paul describes our human nature apart from Jesus, our fallen condition. In Titus 3, verse 3, he writes that we were at one time foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passion and pleasures. And we lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Now, I know that that sounds very harsh, and maybe it sounds a bit too tough, to say about the sinful man, we probably know some very lovely unbelievers. And we probably even know some very unsavory believers. In fact, that's sometimes the challenge, isn't it, of drawing lines too stringently in the church? In worship, everything can be presented as if it's black and white. But tomorrow and throughout this week, we will discover that things can get pretty gray. And if we draw lines too sharply in worship, we run the danger of creating a system that doesn't fit the reality of our world. And we run the danger of creating an us-versus-them scenario where we all pat ourselves on the back for our piety and then boo and hiss at those terrible sinners out there, none of which is particularly helpful. As Paul powerfully reminds us in the opening letters of his or in the opening chapters of his letter to the Romans, all of us, all who are born into this world, need Jesus Christ. Yet if we examine what it means to, to rebel against God, what, if we examine even our own hearts and ask ourselves about what it means when we sin, when we refuse to do what God commands us to, I do think that we discover, don't we, that there is a self-centeredness about our sinfulness and an anger or a hatred that tends to, to, to bubble up in those moments when we are rebelling against God. Surely that's true in the history of our world if, if you think of every war that's ever been fought. But it's true in a more practical level too. Hatred and anger and frustration are on display, for example, every week in family court. It's displayed on the streets of our society, on our TVs and mobile phones. The idea of the Hunger Games or the Squid Games is not so far-fetched because in them I think we see something of the reflection of humanity. And that makes sense. If we replace God with our own image, if we deny God's place over us and refuse to accept or acknowledge that He exists, If we are God, then why should we love our neighbor as ourselves? Then surely they should love us. They should bow to us. If we're just the product of evolution, then why should we be kind to anyone? 
Now, I suppose we could argue that there are certain advantages to being kind to other people, but at some point, survival of the fittest must kick in because life is dog-eat-dog. The point of all of which is only to illustrate that if there is anger and hatred at the heart of sinfulness, then we should expect that there will be love at the very heart of the redeemed. If what we were was a people prone to anger and frustration, then what we are in Jesus Christ ought to be something very different. If we want to use one word to describe the character of the person redeemed by Christ and indwelt by His Spirit, that word ought to be loving. Or at least it should be that we're loving. Like so much of the Christian life, we're not nearly the kind of people that we ought to be, but let's let's at least admit what we should be. That we should be loving. That we should be a people who identify as loving. Loving not in the way that our world defines love, but in the way that God has revealed it in Jesus Christ. Indeed, that's the key to all of this, isn't it? The love that we show as Christians, the love that defines us as church and which flows through us is not the love of our world sung by our world's troubadours and written by their poets, which are but an echo of the truth. The love that we have is the love Revealed in Jesus Christ, the greatest paradigm of this love. Of the love, by the way. That's worth noting in this passage. We have in our translations, love must be sincere. But Paul actually says, the love, the love must be sincere. Because Paul's not talking about just some love here in some generic sense, some general sense of what love is. He says, no, the very paradigm of love, the thing that defined love, the greatest expression of love, not some counterfeit, not some mixture, the love that we are called to express, says Paul, that love must be sincere. What is that love? What is the love of which Paul speaks? It is not merely a feeling, to be sure. Feelings, after all, come and go. Feelings are things that are subject to the whims of the circumstance. And Paul's love is so much more profound, so much more stable, so much more persistent. The love of God in Jesus Christ does not come and go. It's not a feeling God has towards us. It is a love that persists. Indeed, it flows through all of time. And it's certainly not a love that's born out of an appreciation of the person we're loving. That's sometimes where we get a little bit confused. We love someone because they're good and because they have wonderful qualities and because we uh, allow that they do nice things for us. But don't you see that if that's the love that we have, if that's the only love that we have, of course we should value people. Of course we should value their qualities and their, their blessings towards us. But if that's the only thing that defines our love, if we're in a relationship right now, if we're dating someone and we only love them because, well, they do nice things for us, then we don't really love them. If we love them because they measure up to our expectation, then we don't really love them. Because that's selfish. And love is inherently, naturally selfless. That's the nature of love. That's what it means to love. It means to love selflessly. 
As God loved so selflessly, God is love. John tells us in 1 John 4, verse 8, meaning that God and all that God does is the standard of love. And what is it that God did? John tells us. He loved us not because of who we were, not because of what we did, but because He chose to, because He promised to, because He committed to us His love. In the beginning, God could have condemned man for his rebellion and that would have been entirely fair. We couldn't have said a thing against it. We couldn't have complained. We couldn't have said to God, that's unfair, that's not right. It would have been fair. It would have been just. But you see, in that moment, God chose not to give us what we deserve, but to give us love. And His love, from that moment on, pursued fallen man. Just read the Old Testament story. Look at the people that you meet on those pages. Go through the heroes, as we call them, in Hebrews chapter 11, and see how unheroic they all are. See what kind of a person King David was. See what kind of a person Abraham was selling out his wife twice in order to save his own skin. See that these people are not the the great heroic characters we imagine them to be, but are just like us, struggling and stumbling along. And what makes them blessed is that God pursues them, God chases them, God reclaims them, God blesses them, God comes to them, and He mercifully deals with them according to His love. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to die for our sins. This is the love that God pours out into our hearts by His Holy Spirit. Paul says that in Romans 5 at verse 8. He says the love of God is what He pours into your heart. So if your heart is now filled with the love of God by virtue of your being saved in Jesus Christ, then what love flows from it? if it's filled with a love that is selfless and that is sacrificial and that makes a commitment and keeps it no matter the cost, if the love we're given swears to our own hurt, so much so that God was willing to send His own Son to die on the cross, to suffer for our sins, that's the depth and the length and the breadth that God's love was willing to go to in order to redeem you and me and all of us. But if that's the love that's been poured into our hearts, then the love that flows from us is the same. It's a love that is wide and deep and long. It's persistent. It's unshakable. It is certain, committed, sacrificial, selfless. It's not theoretical or technical or anything of that nature, it is the power of God at work within. And that's, that's what we need to come to the table of our Lord to receive. That's what we receive here. Here God says to us, I love you. And it's tempting to think that God loves us because we're worthy. And I say it's tempting even though that sounds so contrary to everything we believe. But the truth is, we will go out this week and we will interact with neighbors and we will act with fellow brothers and sisters in the faith. And we won't treat them well. 
we'll think ill of them. We'll look down upon them. We will judge them. And the only way you can do that is if you come to this table thinking you're worthy. That's the only way you can justify looking down your nose at someone. You must be higher than them. It doesn't work otherwise. You can't look down your nose at somebody if you know that you're just as low as they are. But that's the place we need to be when we come to the table because we need this love. We need this grace. We need this mercy because we need to say, my heart must be filled not with this worldly love that I hear about and that's sung all around me and that's displayed for me on the movies of this world. I need this love. This love is what I need. The love of God in Jesus Christ. So as we come to the table of our Lord, let's come to receive this love. Let's come to be filled by a selfless and sacrificial love. And then let's expect that in the coming week, we're going to show that kind of love, that love that must be sincere. Sincere is a good translation of the word that Paul uses. Unhypocritical would be a slightly better version, since that's exactly the word that Paul uses. The word hypocrite is a Greek word that we've taken, and it's a very interesting word because it is not what you think, sort of. The word hypocrite had to do with a mask that an actor would wear. Sometimes you see at theaters, you see a, a, a theater is symbolized by a smiling mask and a frowning mask. Well, when, when actors would, would play parts in, in Greek theater, they would put a mask on. It might be smiling, might be sad, but they would put a mask on in order to portray the character that they were. And that mask was a hypocrite. So to mask yourself was to present yourself differently than you really were. So that you were outwardly appeared to be one person, but of course inwardly, behind the mask, you're someone else. Well now, if you, if you appreciate that etymology, then you understand why hypocrisy is what it is, why we use the word the way we do. Obviously, we don't use it about masks anymore. Well, not literal masks, but we do use it about emotional or physical masks. That is, when we present ourselves to the world, when we present ourselves to others, we try to present ourselves as one thing when, in fact, we are another. That's what a hypocrite is, isn't it? And on some level, we must all acknowledge that we struggle with hypocrisy. We do this in polite society with some regularity. After all, imagine telling people what we really thought of them. We don't do that, do we? We smile, we hide the truth because it's polite. But the truth is that's our problem. Not, for example, the customer who has annoyed you in the store today. Oh, you smile and you grit your teeth. And you think this person's a terrible human being, but you're the one putting on a mask. You're doing the right outward thing to be sure, but the problem is inwardly you're not right. Because inwardly you're not loving. The problem isn't that we're smiling. That's a good thing. The problem is we don't mean it. That's the bad thing. And it's, it's something we do across the board in so many circumstances of life. Indeed, it's the easiest thing to do. That is, to look at someone, to see someone we're in a relationship with, whether that's a coworker, whether that's a neighbor, spouse, child, doesn't matter, parent, 
it is easy to look at them and to see in them the cause, the problem of our relationship. The problem with my marriage is that she, the problem with my parents is that they, the problem with my job is never me. That's the problem. That's what we have to acknowledge and struggle with. Is that we never take responsibility for our actions. We always find ourselves pointing the finger. Which is selfish or proud or arrogant. Or whatever other word we think we need to apply in that moment. But whatever it is, the truth is that in that moment when we're pointing the finger at someone else. We are struggling with the call of God in this passage to love others with sincerity, that is, unhypocritically. That is to say that our love outwardly ought to be the same as our love inwardly. We ought to smile and be kind and gracious, but that ought to be because we believe it in our hearts. A word, uh, uh, because we believe the truth of what God has said in His Word. Now to be sure, that doesn't mean that other people aren't failing. A spouse can be overly critical. A parent can be overly strict. An employer can be overly cheap. There can be opportunity and necessity for us with love to call that person to repentance, to say to that spouse, wait a minute, You need to do better there. Or to say with patience to our dad and mom, I think that you're too strict. There are opportunities for discussion and debate and and for having a conversation. Sometimes that conversation can be challenging. Sometimes that conversation can have strong words, loving words, rugged words. But it ought to start with our desiring to be loving that what we want to do in this coming weekend in all of our lives is show everybody we come into contact with that we've been changed that we've been filled with the grace of God and Jesus Christ that we this week have feasted upon the bread and the wine there ought to be a consequence a very practical consequence tomorrow when we go to work having been filled again with the grace of God, with the love of God that we have. There ought to be a tangible effect in the way that we approach this week. We ought to, for example, we ought to maybe start by acknowledging that we're not always this way. Maybe you can think of a moment already in this past week or maybe something that you have planned for this week that's going to be challenging and that you're going to have to grit your teeth and smile through being reminded that you have put on a mask, a hypocrisy. And in that that moment that you're thinking about or that you experienced in this past week, you need to start by saying, that's on me. That's my fault. That's my problem. That's not the problem of my customer or my coworker or anybody. That's on me. Because I'm not living out of the joy of salvation, out of the love of God in Jesus Christ. 
And what you need to do is revisit again the good news of the Gospel. And you need to be remember again just how rich is God's love for you. You need to remember how patient Jesus is with you. How forgiving and merciful. How you need never fear when you come to Him. He never grits His teeth. He never smiles but doesn't mean it. And then you need to say, that's who I want to be. And when that moment then comes, and it will come this week, It'll come in the classroom. It'll come in the car. It'll come when you're driving with the kids and they keep asking why or a million other questions or because they're being loud in the back. It'll come at home in your relationship with your spouse. It'll come in so many ways. In that moment, you are going to be challenged to love. To love. To be selfless. To be committed to be kind, to be gentle, to not keep that record of wrong, to not bring up their failing because it's convenient for your argument, to not throw verbal darts in order to defend yourself. In that moment when you're challenged to love, just take a breath, bring yourself back to this table, see the bread and the wine and go, what would he do? What has He done? What should I do? I should love. And then let the love of God flow through you, which has been given to you through Jesus Christ. And express that love in very godly ways. Don't be vacuous in your love. Don't be empty or or just some outward appearance of love. Do real things. Be concrete and persistent in your love. Show yourself to be loving by by doing something meaningful. By asking that friend, how's it going? By bringing that meal. By spending time with that individual. By listening to them. Find concrete and persistent ways to demonstrate that you've been transformed in Jesus Christ. And don't do any of it to score points or to gain something or even even to convert them to the faith. Oh, that sounds strange, doesn't it? Why wouldn't you love someone to convert them for the faith? Well, you would. But the problem is, is when they show themselves unwilling to come to the faith and you say, well, I'm wasting my time here. I'm not going to spend any more time with them. They realize your love was not genuine. That you didn't love them for who they are, but you love them for who they could be. Don't you see, we have to love people because of who we are. Because of who we are in Jesus Christ. And our neighbors and our children, our grandchildren, our friends ought to say that's a loving person. Because that's what it means, doesn't it? That's what it means to be a Christian. The Apostle Paul, indeed all of Scripture, demonstrates for us that at the heart of what it means to be those who belong to God is love. Love that is patient, kind, that does not envy, that does not boast, that is not proud, that is not rude or self-seeking, 
not easily angered, keeps no record of wrongs, that does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. A love that always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Because love never fails. Now there's a word for our world. There may be a word for some of us. Love never fails. That's the power of God's redeeming grace in us. That's the promise that we rest upon as the redeemed of God. That's what we're coming to experience now in the table of our Lord. And that's what we need to live out in this week and in all of our lives. That we have been redeemed. Let love be sincere. Let's ask the Lord for help in that in prayer. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the love that you've given to us that we're about to receive again in the table of your Son. You are loving. And what a price you paid to love so that your love would be sincere. Lord, may we be ready to pay just as high a price in our marriages, in our parenting, in our relationships, in our friendships, in our work. Help us, Lord, to be sincere without hypocrisy when we show love. We're going to need your help for that. So, Lord, as we now come to the table of your Son, feed our souls with grace to love. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.